I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm your host, Adam Schatz. Today we're discussing the American election with two guests, both of whom are contributors to the LRB. The first is Randall Kennedy of Harvard Law School. The second is Mike Davis, who appeared on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. Hi, Randall. It's great to have you on the LRB podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, the people have spoken, and there's uh, there's good news and there's bad news. Uh, the good news is that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have prevailed, both in the popular vote and in the Electoral College. And the bad news is that more than 70 million Americans looked at the last four years of incompetence, cruelty, a, a state-assisted national healthcare crisis, and they decided that they wanted four more years of this. I'm wondering how you read the outcome of this election. Well, I think you put it very nicely. We have to face those two facts. On the one hand, I'm relieved. I mean, I can't, when it, when it looked as though Trump was going to prevail, I felt sick. And uh, I thought that the country was headed towards immediate ruination. I felt better in the subsequent days. And when it was clear that uh, Biden-Harris was going to prevail, yes, I, I felt better. And I do feel relieved. And I don't want to downplay it. I mean, Biden-Harris are ousting an incumbent president. That does not happen very often. Hasn't happened in 25 years, I think. That's something. Incumbency counts a, 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 a great deal, and they were able to oust Trump. Furthermore, there was the pandemic. And I must say it was actually inspiring to see people, to see this surge in voting. And there were people who voted in the United States of America who put themselves at risk. We are in the middle of a pandemic, and there were people voting in places in which the, the pandemic is out of control. And you had elderly people waiting in line. You had all sorts of people waiting in long lines, determined to do what they could do. And of course, they might not have been waiting in line if there had not been those attacks on the national Postal Service. Well, not only that, but had 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 officials in some of these states not closed polling places. I mean, there were people who were waiting in line because of voter suppression. So, I mean, you know, the people were tremendously inconvenienced. I mean, that place in um, that that county in Texas that is huge. There's a county in Texas that's larger than many countries. And with with I think there were, you know, one or two places where people could could vote. You had people that had to drive an hour to vote because of this cockamamie system we have in the United States. But people did it. I mean, you know, they endured, they persisted. And that was truly uh, inspiring. Stacey Abrams in Georgia, you know, she she runs for governor. It's possible that she actually won. She may very well have been the victim of fraud, but she persists. She creates an organization. She goes out, her organization goes out and registers, you know, 800,000 people. 
it made a difference. So there, there was inspiration. I don't want to downplay that. It was, and and I, yeah, I salute all of those people, and all of the, you know, the, these these officials, these volunteers, all across the United States, who also took a risk to make the voting system work. That was great. I'm glad. I'm happy about the outcome. Speaking of Stacey Abrams, since she's someone whom a lot of people in the in the UK might not be familiar with, I mean, she's someone who's very much a, an heir of, of of John Lewis, who passed away during the pandemic, and uh, she has created this organization right over the last six years to win back uh, Georgia of all places. Yes, and even uh, even though there aren't many electoral college votes, it's it's of great symbolic importance that um, MLK's state flips, isn't it? It would be a tremendous, I mean, frankly, it's, it would be wonderful if Biden is able to flip Georgia. But in any event, the fact of the matter that, that it is so close in Georgia, Georgia is a deep South state. And it has been a deep red state. It has been a state, you didn't even have to think about it, you know, the conservative Republicans were going to take it. And that has been changed. Two senators, there are going to be runoffs in January uh, in the state of Georgia. I mean, this is really quite remarkable. And again, that's, that's something that one can embrace. One can take solace from that. I thought it was it, it, it brought tears to people's eyes when, you know, the reports came out that one of the counties that was the, the votes in one county in particular that was changing the trajectory in Georgia was John Lewis's county. I mean, people people thought, oh, my God, he is speaking from the grave. And it was fabulous. And so, you know, I don't want to be too despairing. There were signs of hope. There are things that one can build upon. And so we have to we have to take that we have to build upon that and that's all good but and the but is i have to underline this was a close election i mean it took a couple of days to figure out who was going to be the winner of this election and under the circumstances that this was a close election is in my view an indictment of American society, that someone who had whose record was so bad, full of lying, full of cruelty, full of racism, full of bigotries of every sort, full of corruption. I mean, the chief executive officer of the United States of America, there are many reasonable people who have doubts about his loyalty to the United States of America. I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. And then to top it off, you have his uh, conduct in the pandemic, which has been absolutely atrocious. And you mean to tell me that after all of that, we still have a situation in which so many Americans were willing to give him a second term? You still have a situation in which the Trumpist Republican Party, the Trumpist Republican Party did pretty well last week. I mean, let's face it. They lost no, they, they gained ground in the House of Representatives and they will probably retain control of the Senate which definitely has consequences going forward. So I view this, again, I'm, I'm happy that there was the avoidance of immediate ruination, but I think that there's much darkness ahead. And um, I, I'm certainly not in a dancing in the streets mode. I'm, I'm relieved but I am not exultant. We are not in a moment of triumph in the United States of America, as far as I'm concerned. Right. 
no time to uh, congratulate ourselves on this. And, you know, a, a, a number of commentators have said, well, I mean, these these were Republicans and they were voting on on lines of uh, of political loyalty, um, but they weren't voting for just anyone. No, they weren't just voting for anyone. And frankly, I would say, take a look. There are Republicans. I think of George Will, for instance. You know, there are certain fundamental boundaries that have now been crossed by the Trump administration. And there are there are Republicans who are conservatives who have said, you know, I, I can't go along with this. My conscience. The, the, the governor of Massachusetts, for example. The governor of Massachusetts. And there, there are the, the, the former governor of Ohio. There are others. So I, I say that just to, to point out that, yeah, we this this is a remarkable moment. And it is remarkable, too, that in spite of the emergence of uh, the Lincoln Project and the the, the much hailed uh, Republican dissidents, the masses of Republicans, over 90 percent of them, I think 93 percent stood behind Donald Trump. That intellectual movement was not echoed by any shift among Republican voters. My, my colleague, Charles Freed, who was Ronald Reagan's Solicitor General of the United States, has for the last four years been criticizing Donald Trump and people like him. They are not being listened to at all. They are viewed as sellouts. And um, this is what we're going to have to contend with in the foreseeable future in the United States. And that's why I, again, I'm, I'm relieved, but I, I, we, we've got many troubling days ahead. Mm. I think also the, um, the fact that people like Freed weren't listened to, I think also suggests that there's been a, you know, there's been a shift in the relationship between conservative intellectuals and conservative voters. Conservative voters or right wing voters are more likely to take their instructions from uh, demagogues on Fox News and right wing talk shows. Absolutely. You know, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, those are the spokesmen. Those are the intellectual leaders. <laughs> Not only them, I mean, you know, National Review which was created by William F. Buckley. It used to be the flagship of conservatism. And initially, it seemed for a moment that it was going to repu you know, fully repudiate Trumpism. But they, you know, they, they've been tamed too. And as have many conservative commentators, conservative intellectuals, conservative politicians, and so that's, that's, again, very disturbing, very dispiriting. You know, we've been talking about on the conservative side, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be difficulties ahead on the Democratic side as well. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because, um, you know, you published your last book on the uh, Obama administration, The Persistence of the Color Line, came to mind because in this election, Trump managed to pick up more non-white votes than any of his Republic, Republican predecessors in, um, in recent memory. He got, I think, about 18% of the black male vote and a substantial portion of what has been called the Latino vote. I think that after this election, there's going to be greater scrutiny and reexamination, perhaps, of that, of that term. You know, I, I, the, the black-white color line is not the only color line in this country. There are a number of color lines, if we choose to call them that. If the results in Georgia have been a blow to Republican complacency, then the results among Latino voters have been a blow to Democratic complacency. So I'm wondering, what do you make of that? And to what extent is the color line or racial identity a useful guide to thinking about voter motivation? Well, I'm going to limit myself to African-Americans. Okay. That's really the, the group about which I know the most. And I must say it was, I, I found that 18% statistic of black men startling. And um, I think it needs to be looked at. I'm not saying that I don't believe it to be true. I think it could be true. Unfortunately, it could be true. 
I think one does have to, you know, be careful. Social life is full of so many mysteries. I mean, after all, you know, in 2016, even though Barack Obama tried his darndest to get uh, a big black vote for Hillary Clinton, he did not succeed in doing that. Had he been able to, Trump might not have occupied the White House. I mean, so uh, you can't take anything for granted. You can't assume. You cannot assume that just because people have been insulted, just because people have been vilified, uh, you can't assume that they are going to turn against the person who is insulting them and vilifying them. In some cases, shockingly, it's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, social life is just full of mysterious things. And here we have a situation in which black men have, you know, in, in, in an appreciable number gone over to Trump. Now, I'm really going to be looking at this because, I mean, I just find this tremendously mystifying Although, I mean, if you, you know, it, we, we've, we've heard from some people, I mean, you know, some people have been asked, well, what do you think? And there, you know, there's some people who say, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, he's racist, but um, I don't want to pay higher taxes. OK, well, you know, that you, you then get a sense of priorities, right? Um, you have people who say that, uh, yeah, yeah, he's racist. But, you know, he had me over for dinner. That's more the Kanye West line, probably. Kanye West. There are others. I mean, you know, this rapper uh, Ice Cube. Ice Cube. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there are others. I mean, the opportunism, the, you know, ignorance. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, people, Donald Trump said that, you know, he, he loves, he loves the uneducated. He loves uh, people who don't know much about the world, because people who don't know much about the world are, you know, they're they're susceptible, and we're seeing that. And and they feel and they and they feel condescended to. They feel condescended to. They're angry. I mean, listen. Remember the trouble that Biden got into a couple of months ago. He goes into a, a black talk show, and somebody asks him about Trump, and and he makes the offhand statement. You know, come on, black people should know that they ought to vote for me. And then, there, you know, there are people who got really angry about that and said, oh, you're taking us for granted. You're, you know, you're telling us who to vote for. He was all he was saying. Frankly, I saw nothing problematic about what he said. Basically, if you are a black American, for goodness sakes, you should certainly not vote for Donald Trump. I don't even see what's controversial about that statement, but. You know, we we do have a situation in which people do stand on tippy toe to get insulted, to feel insulted, even from people who are in their own political camp. And uh, this is a this this, too, is a problem. And going forward, you know, the, the Biden coalition is going to have to remain a coalition. And that is going to take some doing on his part. I'll be interested to see how, you know, how many days will it be before there are people in the Biden coalition who start speaking very angrily against Biden, frankly, even before he gets into the White House. I suspect, frankly, that it won't be that many days. It might already have happened, uh, for all I know. There's such a contrast between uh, this uh, Republican, almost totalitarian discipline and uh, coherence and uh, the fractiousness of the Democrats in that regard. Yes. I mean, that's true. I'm a Democrat, and I think it is to the good that in much of the Democratic Party, there is attentiveness to pluralism in all of its various dimensions, and I think that that's good. But of course, that that does impose costs, and um, it's more difficult. And that that has been an advantage of the Republicans, frankly, over the Democrats. 
That's what I mean. Charles, Charles, Charles Blow in his column today said that the, uh, the the Democrats are still playing softball while while the Republicans are you know continue to play hardball. You know, Biden uh, has said that his major commitments are going to be on racial justice, climate change, uh, reviving the economy, or economic equity. He said more to the point in his acceptance speech, he made it pretty clear that he feels. He, he recognizes his debt to black Americans for this election. And, of course, Com, uh, Kamala Harris paid respects to all of the women, especially black women and women of color who come before her. How do you think um, that debt might be begin to be repaid? I'll say two things. I agree with you, but I would say that the first thing that came out of Biden's mouth, and maybe it was correct— but it's it's going to it's going to be it'll be interesting to see how he handles it. The first word out of his mouth, the first sort of big keyword, reconciliation, reconciliation was his theme. I am going to be the president for all the people, including those who did not vote for me. You know, the, the other word, by the way, was possibility. America as a place of possibility. And I thought, hmm, there's a bit of tension here between possibility and reconciliation, because reconciliation could mean there's not much possibility of really changing this country. Well, there's, you know, there, there, are, a couple of, there are a couple of key words to, to watch. Uh, restoration. Is a, is a word that I've heard out there. Reconciliation possibility. Let's, let's, let's reconciliation. Now, what does that mean? What could that mean when you have someone like Mitch McConnell, who's not even recognizing that he won and who might do his best to sabotage uh, his legislative agenda as soon as he's in power, as he did with Obama? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Biden's, you know, Biden's not He's aware of that. He's aware of that. He's not naive. I think that what Biden might be angling for is something that Obama angled for. Question, was it, you know, was it politically wise? But in any event, you know, Obama was a big reconciliation man, too. He tried. He was, you know, let's be bipartisan. Let me reach across the aisle. Compromise. Compromise, compromise. And I think what I think what they have in mind is, you know, is it possible that I can get across to a part of the electorate that might not start off being with me, but maybe I can convince them to be with me? I think that's what they have in mind. And I think that what many Democrats are saying is that's a nice idea. It'd be wonderful if people were susceptible to persuasion. It'd be a great idea if you could coax people to compromise. But frankly, over the past 10, 15 years with the radicalization of the Republican Party, their move far rightwards, I think there's a feeling among you know many Democrats that no, the, you know, you, it takes two to rec- you, you need you need you need a, two parties for reconciliation, at least. And you can't do it alone. And the people on the other side are simply not interested. And so you have this divide within the Democrats. On the one hand, you have the people who, you know, who speak reconciliation. Let's let's bring over people who are have not been with us, but maybe who will be with us. Versus, on the other hand, on the left, more left side of the Democratic Party, no, let's just realize we're not going to reach that 70 million who voted for Trump. We're not going to reach them. What we should be doing is reaching the people in the people who did not vote. Let's 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 get new voters and let's get people who might be registered, but who were not enthused enough to, you know, walk to the voting, the the polling station and actually pull the lever. Let's get to those people. And to get to those people, we are going to have to talk a more left message. We are going to have to, you know, really pound on the table with some economic populism. We are going to have to reach them where they are and say, this is why you should be with us. 
that is a debate that is going to be a very sharp and very vocal debate in the coming weeks, months, in fact, years. I want to go back to your comment about uh, this election being an indictment of American society. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about about Trump, one of the paradoxes of the Trump era is that someone who is so ignorant, so uninterested in history, in the past, in anything that came before him, in anything that doesn't have anything to do with him, uh, someone who really lives according to his um, his his impulses um, could have inspired such kind of probing reflection on the roots of our, of the historical roots of America's crisis. There's been a, an explosion of work about you know, the legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow. I think of. Um, events in journalism like the 1619 Project, which, whatever its flaws, represents uh, something quite uh, significant. Is there, do you have, are you concerned that if there is a return to this sort of false normalcy, this restoration narrative, that Americans will become complacent, as they so often are, about the deep problems that really uh, afflict this society? The answer is yes. Because frankly, even given the George Floyd moment of this summer, much of America uh, remained complacent. You know, I mean, you could you could watch the news and see hundreds of thousands of people in the street, and that was again inspiring and instructive and important. But there were millions, by the way, who you know flipped the station turned off the television, were against the expression of protest. And so the complacency of, the, of, of, of many Americans in the face of terrible inequity, racial and otherwise, that complacency, that, that's been a continuity in American life. It, it, it's not like uh, there's been a tremendous breakthrough and that, you know, that was, that was ever gone. It's, it's always been there. You know, I'm a person who, with respect to the race question in America, there are various camps, but two of the most important camps are the optimistic camp and the pessimistic camp. And what I mean by that is there are, if you ask the question, shall we overcome Shall we overcome? There are some people in the United States who say, no, we shall not overcome. That's the pessimistic camp. And actually, the pessimistic camp is in many ways the more interesting. In the pessimistic camp, you have people of all complexions. Among the whites in the pessimistic camp would be Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, well, three very substantial people, three very substantial thinkers. All three of them said, no, largely because of slavery, the well has been poisoned in America. No, you will not have a situation in which people of different races will coexist on an equal basis under the same government. No. Uh, after, in, the, in the 20th century, the black nationalists Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, Elijah Muhammad, more recently uh, Minister Farrakhan, or the or the Afro pessimist school of think of critical thought. The Afro pessimist, my former colleague uh, Derek Bell. There is a long line of people who answer the question: No, you know, alas, we shall not overcome. Let's just be realistic about this. Now, there is another tradition. Very important tradition, the optimistic tradition. In the 19th century, the great spokesperson for the optimistic tradition would be the great Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, even before the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in the United States, even before that, Frederick Douglass was asked straightforwardly, do you see a time when people of different races in America will be able to exist as as equal neighbors, will neighbor? Can you can you imagine multiracial 
neighborliness on an equal basis in the United States? And his answer was, yes, I can. I can I can foresee that. So you have Frederick Douglass. In the 20th century, the great spokesperson would be Martin Luther King Jr. See his I Have a Dream speech, August 1963. In the 21st century, the most influential uh, expositor of, of this view would be Barack Obama. I have always, for, for most of my life, I have been in the optimistic tradition. I must tell you, and this really pains me, I feel tremendously chastened. I think I still put myself in the optimistic tradition, but I do so knowing that I'm doing it partly out of habit, partly out of just a yearning on behalf of my children, because it's just, it's, it's, you know, could I, I, just emotionally, the idea that no, we shall not overcome, it's, it's, it, it might be just too much for me to bear. Though I tell you, you know, my, I grew up in a household. My father was a thoroughgoing pessimist. My father basically took the position that, uh, no, uh, this is a white man's country. And the best that we're going to be able to do, if you stay in the United States, you can, you know, uh, arm yourself with as much education as possible and make as good a life as as possible. But no, he did not foresee uh, racial justice blooming in the United States of America. Now, you know, my me and my brother and sister, we've we've had very good lives. We've been very lucky. We've been part of the we we were people who enjoyed the benefits pried loose by the black liberation movement, and we've had good lives. But even still, I feel a tremendous sense of dread because the Trump presidency and all that it represented, it's a shadow. And frankly, I don't think that I will live I think I'll always, I will, the rest of my days, I I suspect, I will be feeling the chill of that shadow. And I, you know, I don't, I don't say that with any happiness at all. I say that with tremendous sadness, but that's the way I feel. Randall, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the LRB podcast. That was uh, very eloquently put. My guest has been Randall Kennedy, professor of law at Harvard University. Thanks so much. Thank you. Be well. It's my pleasure to welcome as our second guest on this special post-election podcast, Mike Davis. Thanks for joining us, Mike. My pleasure. Mike, um, I want to talk to you, of course, about Biden and the opportunities and the traps that, that await him. But before we get to Biden... And what lies ahead? I want to ask you something about the uh, result, which was staggering uh, for the strength that Trump, in spite of his his cruelty, his incompetence, still showed at the polls. Now, in our interview just before the election, you underscored very presciently uh, the Democratic Party's failure to organize effectively among Latino voters, especially in Texas. And your analysis bore out entirely. But if we look at this nationwide, do you think that the continuing force of Trumpism electorally reflects failures of the Biden-Harris campaign, failures of organization, or do you think it reflects the extent to which conservative organizations, ideologues, right-wing uh, talk, show, talk shows, uh, television, etc., have created a kind of hegemony, a sort of right-wing common sense among large swaths of the American population. Well, polls have shown, and of course we have to be very dubious about poll results these days, but polls have shown that uh, Trump has uh, a steady, solid 41% approval rate. Call that the Trump base. 
but he gained another at least 7% from voters who we assume were not part of that base at all. And why did he do it? Well, the fact is that the coronavirus, the pandemic, when voters, all voters were sampled, uh, came in third. The economy was uh, far and away the most important issue, followed by uh, racial inequality. And I think the greatest strategic error of the Biden campaign, apart from the fact that it was using the same one-size-fits-all suburban template that Clinton did, but its great, greatest failure was he ended up running almost entirely on the issue of the pandemic and ceded jobs to, to, to Trump. For instance, back in April, when it became obvious that the pandemic was out of control and when rank-and-file health workers and other groups were going out in strike in protest against their unsafe workplaces, the Democrats should have taken that issue up and should have said, listen, we want to open the economy more than anything else. But to do that, have to assure uh, the workers are safe. Same for same same for education, of course, I mean, because Trump was playing playing on the same fears about schools. So in, in other words, they they didn't balance the the critique of the pandemic response with an insistence that um, jobs depended upon increasing safety and managing the pandemic. And then this fall, uh, a month ago, the third quarter report showed significant uh, recovery. Job figures increased in, in October. So when it came to uh, the debate, Trump, of course, ran almost entirely on the economy. Do you, do you think, Mike, that that was enough to make the difference with Mexican-American voters, for example, in South Texas, on the South, South Texas border? There, there have been some suggestions in some of the reporting uh, that I've read about, uh, about South Texas in the, in the Times that there were also uh, Latino voters in Texas who were not simply looking past the racism and the cruelty and the, you know, the sort of thuggish populism that, that Trump embodied, but that some of them actually liked Trump. Well, some of this has been attributed to the fact that the that ICE uh, is a major employer in the whole border region. Other people suggest that it's uh, right to life. Catholicism. Right, because the because the the, the 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 uncomfortable fact about ICE is that it employs a lot of, of native Spanish speakers. Yes, and, and particularly uh, Spanish speaking Texans, even here on the California border. But what this ignores is the tremendous campaign that Bernie Sanders waged in South Texas. He had two hundred full time Latino organizers, young Latinos on his national staff. And he's and after uh, Julian Castro, the only Latino presidential primary candidate, dropped out of the race in January, on Super Tuesday in March, Sanders entirely swept the seven major border counties and the San Antonio area. There's tremendous enthusiasm for him. So Sanders might have won those votes, but but on account of. Uh of, of anti-communism and, and fears about socialism, he might have lost even more of the Cuban and Venezuelan votes in Florida. Yes, perhaps, but he might have done a much better job mobilizing groups like the Puerto Rican vote, because something like 150,000, maybe more, Puerto Ricans were forced to leave after Hurricane Maria and went to Florida. That remains to be seen, but it's not surprising that Miami, which is the capital of uh, counter-revolution in, in Latin America, all these uh, very wealthy Venezuelan exiles and the traditional Cuban leadership was able to have a big impact on the vote in Miami-Dade uh, County. But in Texas, where polls were showing, probably incorrectly, that Biden was neck-to-neck -neck with Trump, 
the democratic strategy was to concentrate on nine or 10 suburban counties that Beto O'Rourke had won in 2018. And the goal here was to win the House seats in the Texas legislature in those counties. Because what's been such a supreme obstacle to Democrats in Texas was the gerrymander that occurred after the 2010 election. So if they won those seats, they would have a majority in the 150-member Texas House of Representatives, and they would prevent a new gerrymander. And the Democrats initially didn't finance this strategy. And finally, at the end of the day, Bloomberg and another uh, Democratic billionaire poured a lot of money into the races. The Democrats didn't win any of them. The Texas observers pointed out that, in fact, there's a ceiling. It revealed the ceiling on how much of the vote that Democrats could garner in suburbs. But the odd thing about this is that veteran campaign managers and politicals in, in, in Texas have never saw the suburbs it really is the key to swing the states, but have all agreed that it was South Texas. So Biden's candidacy obviously didn't mobilize the energy and commitment that the Sanders campaign showed. So there wasn't a significant increase in Democratic turnout. What Trump harvested is the fact the political economy of South Texas changed radically since NAFTA. And you now have a much larger group of Spanish-speaking entrepreneurs, you know, people who are shipping agents, uh, independent truckers, warehouse managers, and so on. And initially, they were totally repelled by the Trump administration because of its uh, war against NAFTA. Once a new agreement had been reached to Mexico and restored the status quo, they were free to, to mobilize and vote along with their white counter, Anglo counterparts uh, in the Chamber of Commerce. So that enabled Trump to reduce the Democratic margin. In, in 2016, uh, that was, Clinton won by f- uh, 40%. They reduced it to 15% and even won a county that's 80% Tejano. Uh, Valverde County, that's McAllen, Texas, they actually flipped that county. So, uh, you know, this was a totally unnecessary uh, disaster. The Democratic Party has too many orphan constituencies. Latinos in Texas, Appalachians, Puerto Rico, Indian country, and so on, where they don't invest resources or mobilize with, you know, the kind of energy that would be necessary to achieve uh, large turnouts. Are you confident that if Sanders had been the candidate, his organization would have mobilized those orphan constituencies and handed the Democrats a larger victory than Biden and Harris uh, won? Well, Sanders won three-quarters of the under-30 Latino vote in Texas, California, and Nevada. He won the under-45 vote as a whole by by a majority. So the results would have been different, for sure, I think. Mike, as early as Prisoners of the American Dream, uh, your history of the working class that you published in the mid-1980s, you have argued for a black-brown alliance for black-Latino uh, solidarity. And I'm, I'm wondering whether the, the, the results in this election have um, forced any reconsideration or dampened some of your optimism, or do you think it's just a matter of, you know, more focused, intelligent, democratic organizing among Latinos? Uh, in places like South Texas, that could revive the chances of of such an alliance, because you know we have seen um, you know massive turnout among African Americans, albeit with some support for Donald Trump, especially among Black men, but the numbers among Latinos are much less encouraging. So I'm wondering how do, how does that strike you? 
Well, we should remember that in addition to the tremendous effort by black voters in Philadelphia and Georgia, there was also incredibly enthusiastic and successful campaign by Latinos in Arizona. Now, in all these cases, it was the fact that the Biden campaign was able to link up to existing popular struggles and movements that uh, enabled these kinds of results in places where there really wasn't the same kind of foundation of, of movement. For instance, in Ohio and Iowa, the Democrats suffered a massive loss. But the responsibility here, I mean, it would be entirely wrong to blame uh, black activism or a kind of uh, totally black-centered political strategy on the neglect of Latinos. Latinos are second-class citizens in the Democratic Party because the Clinton, Obama, and now, you know, Biden, the center of the party, has refused to invest the resources required. Do you think the election suggests that Latinos are a less reliably progressive constituency than has been understood in the past? Is the term Latino a term that we need to interrogate, dissect? Have, has, is it, does it, does it uh, uh, conceal more than it reveals in some ways? To, to some extent. I mean, it's comparable to the use of the term Asian American uh, for people from nationalities that historically uh, have been enemies and have very separate uh, 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 cultures. But look, the, the overwhelming majority of Latino population in the United States are Mexican, Puerto Rican, or Central American origin. Uh, they're solid Democrats. What happened in Florida was that the uh, uh, shift that's been occurring over the last decade or more of younger Cuban descent people uh, voting Democratic, that was reversed uh, by the tremendous amount of money that was put into the election by the uh, lead the wealthy leadership of the Cuban and Venezuelan communities. But the real question is this. Why haven't the centrist Democrats, Obama, Clinton, and now Biden, learned any lessons uh, from that? I mean, the exclusion of Julian Castro from the speaker's platform at the Democratic Convention is an incredible slap in the face to Latino Democrats uh, across the country. The fact that the campaign in South Texas, the Biden campaign only paid attention to it three or four days before the election, when they suddenly had to hurry Kamala Harris down to the border with, with Tom Perez. It didn't mean that they increased resources for the campaign down there at all. But we really have to look to another uh, level of this which is the role of social movements and activism at the base in the party. And I think one of the most unrecognized aspects of Black Lives Matter is what a strong participation there is of uh, young Latinos of, of every kind. And you have many examples of uh, tremendous unity. And many of whom are also black and multiracial. I mean, there's overlap. And multiracial is very important. I mean, the uh, largest group of babies being born in California these days are Latino. The second largest group are all of the above or part of the above. The number of multiracial Americans is growing very, uh, very rapidly. But the real problem is in the power structure of the Democratic Party itself. And if older black Democratic politicians are now paid up members of that. Latinos are still, still excluded. So it's very interesting to see what kind of cabinet appointments Biden uh, is going to make in the, uh, the next couple of months. Well, I mean, black voters have long complained rightly that they're that they are taken, their vote is taken for granted by the Democratic Party. Um, that in this most recent election, 
shifted, arguably, um, and included, of course, the the choice of, of of a black woman, daughter of immigrants, as well as a, as the VP candidate. But now Latino voters have just as much of a right. Well, they they already had a right to complain of being taken for granted. I suspect that the results sting, and that um, the Democratic Party may have to take a hard look at the failure in Texas because Texas could have turned blue otherwise. It's also time for the Democrats to consider, on a national scale, the implications of generational secession in California. Because, of course, the it's essentially octogenarian white Democrats uh, who control the California party. And through that, uh, have such uh, extraordinary prominence in, in, in Congress. But for the last 20 years... A legislative leadership has been Latino, Chicano. And once Nancy Pelosi retires and perhaps taking Kamala Harris's place uh, in the Senate, are going to be locally very powerful uh, Chicano Democrats. Will they ascend into the leadership? Now, of course, this skips over an important problem. If you go back to South Texas, the democratic establishment there, it's really a democratic machine, is actually quite conservative. So the terrific Sanders vote was in some ways a, an uprising. Against the Democratic Party structure there. Yeah, and comparably in California, you you no longer can talk about, you know, Chicano politicians as if Democrats, as if they share the same agenda. There's this center-left split there. And, and, and the center-left split... Um, is already turning into a, a low-grade conflict that will certainly become more ferocious once um, Biden and Harris take office January 20th. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who you know is uh, the most probably the most eloquent spokeswoman, spokesperson of um, progressive Democrats, gave an interview in the in the New York Times a couple of days ago, sounding the alarm about uh, the uh, pushback by conservative Democrats uh, against uh, the insurgent energy of young progressive activists and their desire to see this administration do something, do something more than merely restore a kind of imagined normalcy. And uh, she said that uh, the leadership of the party is blind to uh, the significance of anti-racist movements and actually regards them as a potential threat to their efforts to win over, quote-unquote, moderate whites. Can you talk a bit about uh, that coming struggle between uh, those two wings, the Democratic Party? She also nailed another point, which was the sheer incompetence of particularly the Democratic Congressional Campaign uh, uh, committee, because progressives uh, and democratic socialists did quite well in this uh, election. The squad were all reelected with uh, big majorities, despite millions and millions of dollars of Republican money that was spent to discredit them. But the problem is this: that uh, what Biden does is determined by the composition of the Congress and by the available power that that he has. If there'd been a landslide, this would have given uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party an awful lot of leverage to continue to fight for Medicare for all and, you know, the other uh, goals of it. But the situation today and the party, the power that the Republicans uh, retain makes it unlikely that he'll be able to pull a Biden boom out of uh, the current recession. He won't be able to pass uh, a sufficiently large relief bill. And because the blue dogs, the conservative wing of the party, it's quite small. It's only about a third of the size or less of the progressive caucus. But it, in fact, has gained leverage from Democratic failures in the congressional elections. So all this creates a calculus 
where Biden will naturally have to make increasing concessions to the right. And what I found so startling about his victory speech was that it was almost word for word, uh, the same as Obama's in 2016. You remember that Obama's great emphasis was on healing the country, unifying people, returning to... In, two, in, 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 in 2008, you mean? Yes, I'm sorry, in 2008. And we can see where that got Barack Obama. Uh, Mike, our previous guest was Randall Kennedy, professor at Harvard Law. And Randall said, described the uh, results of the election as an indictment of American society and said that having been a kind of racial optimist through his entire life, a supporter of civil rights movement, uh, politics of integration and so on, he had been chastened by these results. Do you, do you, do you share that feeling? Do you, do you look at the, at this election and have, and do you feel troubled by this country and by its direction? Well, of course I do, because um, it wasn't that long ago in the days of Occupy that the country was depicted as the people versus the greedy 1%. And now we realize that there's 40% of the country of the electorate, uh, which is almost immovable in terms of racial justice and other issues. But we've done a really bad job of understanding exactly what the Trump base is. I mean, it's uh, depicted as being rural America in using a lens that has only, uh, discriminates only three things, you know, uh, cities, suburbs, and, and rural in fact, the real base of, of, of Trump's power are in the excerpts. For instance, if you go to Dallas, okay, the older suburbs of Dallas are now Democratic, and in large part because the movement of people of color into uh, those suburbs, wealthy whites, some of them still live in suburban, but they you know, largely have, have moved further away from the center of the city to uh, plan gated suburbs, building large homes on the periphery. Exurban America is different from suburban America and from rural America. And one of the factors driving its rapid growth, of course, is white flight and the, the goal of creating geographical preserves where yeah. uh, conservative Republicans can and evangelical Christians can again have uh, hegemony. And exurbs have been growing faster than the suburbs for a long time now. So the inadequate analysis of the Trump base has really hobbled, I think, progressive attempts to understand. I mean, personally, I'm not at all surprised because I did not grow up in... Um, uh, a solidly democratic place. I grew up in a essentially right-wing uh, suburb on the edge of the of the country, so I've never uh, never ha- had illusions that it was the one percent. And the American entrepreneurial small business middle class has really doubled down now to protect itself by denying further rights or progress uh, to the rest of the country. We should observe, though, that for college graduates, especially those who are first-time college graduates, who come from immigrant or working-class families, who've made enormous sacrifices to put their kids in school, only to graduate and find that there's no ladder of mobility and find themselves stranded in low-wage or temporary jobs, or working as underpaid school school teachers. This is a, a material base that supported the Sanders campaign. This is the, you know, the significant downward mobility, the generation under 30. And the Sanders campaign was able to ally that with huge uh, uh, anxiety and activism against the total erosion of everything won by the civil rights struggle 
and equal rights movements uh, in general. So what you see is something very divided that amongst younger Americans, large numbers of, of white Americans have identified themselves very completely uh, with black American struggles, racial justice. And some of them, of course, have died recently in support of, uh, of Black Lives Matter. I mean, the problem starts really about 45 years old, everything above that in terms of, uh, uh, of, of white voters. So it's you, you can't trust anyone under 45 now, not 30, no. to, quote, to quote Abby Hoffman. <laughs> Also, the under thirty generation is unlike any I think we've we've seen in the last seventy five, maybe even a a uh, hundred years. I mean, I, I've talked about this in personal terms because I still have my two younger kids are still in in high school. And they identify with their mother as uh, uh, Mexican, but what astonishes me are their friends. Their friends are all, you know, Latino or black kids, working class kids who go to the same inner city high school and uh, almost a person, all of their friends were, you know, incredibly enthusiastic Sanders supporters. They became active in Black Lives uh, uh, Matter. But what's going to happen now uh, to the big activists base of, of, of democratic socialism and progressivism in the United States. And how, if at all, might they, might they affect the new administration? If the new administration finds itself under popular pressure and protest from the left? Will there be popular protests from the left? I fear a great depression of enthusiasm and uh, hope in the activist, the new activist movements and the new uh, new left. I mean, that hap began to happen on a large scale after Sanders' concession, and particularly after uh, the Sanders negotiators conceded Medicare uh, for all. But Black Lives Matter came along and it rescued that generation of, of activists. It recycled them. But what now? Well, that's 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 the big question, isn't it? What now? And of course, what. AOC and others are, uh, you know, are, are saying is, look, we're winning, we're growing, but only to the extent that the movement outside of the electoral system continues to pump energy into elections, but beyond elections begins to formulate a, a, an action program. One example of this, where this didn't happen, was the whole question of worker safety back at the in in late spring where you had tens of thousands of people striking sometimes wildcat strikes over worker safety could have built a whole movement around that and remains as necessary as ever because the labor department for months didn't file a single uh, complaint against employers but received thousands and thousands of complaints uh, from workers what happens in the Labor Department is going to be very important. Isn't there, isn't there talk of Elizabeth Warren becoming the next Labor Secretary? Oh, there's, there's talk of Bernie Sanders. And Sanders. So this will be a real, uh, uh, a real test. Stacey, maybe Stacey Abrams as well, no? I mean, she certainly delivered. Oh, Stacey Abrams uh, is a miracle worker. What she's achieved in uh, 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 Georgia. But women of color in general, women of color are the you know, most single important activist element in the Democratic Party. They are the largest constituency for progressive politics, including social democratic politics, in the United States. And it's interesting that the Republicans in some way tried to counter that by running an unusual number of, of women this time around, uh, very f uh, forceful, powerful uh, female candidates. But we'll also measure the Biden administration about the role given to women of color. Now, Kamala Harris shouldn't be amalgamated or equated to Biden. She, I think, would be more progressive if 
the balance of power in Congress uh, shift. shifted. As vice president, of course, she, didn't, she can't do much because she has to support Biden. But if Biden, for instance, were, were to die because he's a very old man, this would open up opportunities. But everything ultimately depends upon movement and mil- movement building, a fighting back against the huge increase of poverty and unemployment, and desperation and hunger in the country. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It was a, a real pleasure to an education to talk to you for a second time about presidential election and its consequences. Thanks for joining us on the LRB podcast. Okay. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.